Hey everyone, it's just Rob here on the intro because Ray, uh, Ray's out. I don't know where Ray went off. Oh, I see him. I see him. Ooh, Ray is burning down the house. Ray is burning down three houses. He's burning down seven houses and he is lighting cars on fire. What is he doing? What is he doing? Well, he has nothing to worry about because when they arrest him and throw him into the clink, he's going to be pleading for the Twinkie defense. Now, you might ask, what is the Twinkie defense? Well, stick around. And listen. Oh, wait, we're on fire. Gotta go. Gotta go. This was a thing. This was a thing. This was a thing. Do you remember Patty versus kidnapping? This was a thing. Pretty much Atari. Deep Throat Roots and Ted Bundy. Hanoi Jane. Celebrity. Hi, I'm Ray. And I'm Rob. And you're listening to This Was a Thing, the podcast that dives deep into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. On today's episode, we have a very special guest with us who's going to be joining us from this point forward. Season three, that means you get three hosts. Congratulations. Uh, we want to introduce you to someone. Ray, do you want to do the introductions for this particular individual? And now translate. It's Daniel Schwartzberg, our uh, producer, editor, and now co-host, and he is excellent. Optimum is uh, the word for excellent, because I looked that up before we uh, before we started. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Oh, my goodness. Thank you very much, you guys. It's, it is a, a pleasure to be on. And uh, Ray, that's, well, I'll get a grade back to you on the, on the introduction later. I, I don't need a grade. I don't need a grade. I'll give you a grade right now. There you go. <laughs> Whoa, come I'm on. Glad Rob, I'm glad Rob broke it to you. I'm glad I didn't have to do it. Fultimus. Which means fantastic. Okay, well, if it's for Fatinus, then I'm good. Let's uh, let's tell our listeners a little bit about Dan Daniel oh, Schwartzberg. Okay. Where are you from? Well, I was born and raised in the in the good old Granite State. That would be New Hampshire. Um, and for those of you who don't know New Hampshire, it's kind of the 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 reverse and flipped upside down version of Vermont because they're right next door to each other. Oh. I heard New uh, New Hampshire is like beautiful, and people really take it for granite. So, Daniel, what do you do for a living? All right. Well, yeah. So, I, I grew up in the 603 and then uh, found my way to um, a school in the Midwest uh, called the University of Michigan, where I studied some musical theater and also studied some Latin and made my way to the big old Big Apple uh, for a few years. Now, I am, after many, many twists. Uh, twists and turns, I found myself in Connecticut, which is where I'm living now, and I teach Latin to uh, to students at the Pierpont School. Um, I probably don't need to say the name of the school, but there you go. If you if you want, it's a great, great little school in Westport, Connecticut, so that's where I'm at now. Great, great, great. And so, folks, just I want to reiterate a couple of things about Daniel Cutcut Schwartzberg. He's obviously very smart, and I'm going to talk. You can't see it's a podcast, folks, so you can't see how good-looking Daniel is, and I'm going to send that over to my buddy Ray to describe him. Uh, just for our listeners who might not have a photograph of Daniel. Ray, how, how would you describe Daniel's looks? Well, first off, uh, once you get past the fact that he uh, is bilingual in a romantic uh, language, is it, a rom- is it romantic? It is now. When he's speaking it, 
I'm hard. But I mean, Daniel's a good looking this guy's smile, and Rob always makes fun of me because I have a, a, a bit of a man crush on Daniel because Daniel is somehow able to uh, take the madness of Rob and I uh, talking about just random pop culture and make it into a cohesive podcast. I want to just validate what Ray is saying and, and, tell, and tell you all how attractive ladies Daniel is because uh, D- Daniel goes for the other team, and that's fantastic. Uh, I'm not going to hold that against him. I just don't want my kids to see it. You know, you what you do on your own time, Daniel, is fine. Just as long as my twinks don't see it, I'm okay. So, Daniel, we're happy to have you on board, and uh, we're, we're welcome. Welcome to the team uh, officially, even though you've been part of the team since the beginning. Welcome to the vocal team. My goodness, I I feel like it will take the entire rest of the season for me to remotely live up to anything you guys just said. I'll, all I will say is that it is my honor and pleasure to get to join you two. Um, it has been a pleasure of just all sorts to get to listen and uh, go through your guys' wonderful zaniness these past couple of seasons and listening to these past uh, little drop here, 100 plus episodes. You guys rocked that. Hey. Hey. Uh, that would be that would be Kentum. Kentum is a hundred. So there you go, right? Hey, we learn we learn something new every day. And speaking of learning something new every day, uh, today, friends, we are talking. I'm leading this particular discussion Love it. on something oh, yeah, that is are. known as the pop. It's a pop culture moment, and boy, is it a pop culture moment, friends. We are talking about something today called the Twinkie defense. Mm. The Twinkie defense, um, and that's not my old handle name on Grinder. The okay, Twinkie yeah. defense. Is uh, uh, when you look today, friends, and and you look at things that happen in the judicial system, and you're like, how the hell did people that are so clearly guilty get away with something through a loophole or through a a whole new defense that you never even knew freaking existed, like affluenza, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, at some point in this podcast. Um, It all comes back to what is known as the Twinkie defense. So I'm going to turn it over to Daniel and Ray and ask you both a question: Have you either heard? Have either one of you ever heard of this term before? The Twinkie. Twinkie defense. And I'll ask uh, Daniel first. Ray, have you ever heard the term before? You said you'll ask Daniel first. Ray, have you ever heard the term before? I liked it. I like this. It's going to keep us on our toes. Well, I just want to make sure everyone is listening. I've heard of the bear offense. What is the bear offense, friend? Well, it's what the Twinkie defense goes against. (gasps) I actually don't know the Twinkie uh, defense, defense, and I actually was, uh, I didn't look it up so I could find out. So I'm I'm empty-brained. In my case, I am in the same boat as Ray, which I guess is great because we get to spend some time together. But I have no idea what the Twinkie defense is. I'm aware of the food, the Twinkie. Um, I think it was discontinued for a while, in fact. But apart from that, I have no idea how legally it ties into anything. It was discontinued for a while in my home because my parents were like, you're eating too oh, much of it. Rob. <laughs> That's the only time I know of it is being discontinued, where it impacted me personally. Eat what you enjoy. Eat what you enjoy. Let me ask you both another question. Do you like Twinkies? Yeah. I've never had one. Uh, what, what? What? I've never had one. But Although I'm, 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 this is not like a, I don't put anything bad in my body. I, I have a, a sincere and deep abiding love of ice cream, which is something that I indulge in whenever I have can't have the chance to. Well, okay, but you've never had a Twinkie? I have not had a Twinkie. Would either of you like to describe the sensorial experience of eating a Twinkie? Ray, you want to do it or should I? Well, I mean, you know like when you taste like a cream and you go, this is just fake sugar in a cream in like a, a, a creamy sense. Well, imagine that with like a uh, a fake uh, angel food cake around it. 
And uh, and then also when you take the wrapper off, that angel food cake feels like it's been sweating. Ooh, it has like a little moisture, almost like it's like a water bottle yeah. on like a hot day kind of thing. Yeah, because of the because of the being in the uh, plastic. But it's, it's still good. It looks. I mean, what the way when I look at one, it it looks like it would be like if somebody took like a store cupcake and flipped it inside out, like a store vanilla cupcake and like flipped it inside out and like elongated it. It is beautiful religious experience it is a beautiful yellow sponge cake with this incredible cream filling in the center of it it is it is for if you're an atheist out there eat a twinkie and then you will see the face of god i don't know if i've ever bought a twinkie like in my adult life not being high <laughs> like oh, i oh. like oh it's like one of those like i'm going to 7-eleven like really high i'm like Oh yeah, I should get a Twinkie. Yeah, let's get a Twinkie. Ladies, I'm sorry. I yeah, I, no, I led the beginning disappointed. with this saying he was a wonderful human being. The man's never had a Twinkie, and I have to apologize. I'm very sorry. But he indulges in ice cream. He indulges in ice cream. What's your favorite ice cream, Daniel? Oh man, it's so hard. All right, I think a classic that I will always love though is black raspberry, and also purple cow, which is like black raspberry, but it has dark and white chocolate chips. Wow. Okay, let me ask you both another question, if I may. Have you ever eaten so much sugar? that you did something that was totally out of character or so much caffeine. I'll take sugar, caffeine, any sort of substance that's not like a drug that you've put into your body and it made you do something that was totally out of character. Is a carjacking out of character? For you? Um, uh, Not for you, Ray, because I've yeah. seen what happens across the street from where you live. So no, yeah. I don't think that's out of character for you. Okay. Then no, no, not for me. Oh, asking for a friend? Is that what this sort of thing is? Is that? Um, no, personally, I think that it, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I'm I am sure that I have had moments where sugar has led to unhinged behavior. Have you ever killed someone because you had too much sugar? Well, let, we're we're recording currently, so why don't we like, we'll do this off offline? But we'll talk about it great. later. <laughs> great, great. Well, I'm gonna no, I'm gonna tell you the story of a man who killed two people because he had too many Twinkies. Go on. And somehow got out of prison because of this defense. So, friends, we're going to go back to the year 1978. Can I get some disco music, please? That's it. That's all I needed. Thanks. Just, just like to set the mood. We are going back to 1978, San Francisco, and we're looking at an individual by the name of Dan White. Dan White. Now, if you saw the movie Milk with Sean Penn, you know that Dan White was played by Josh Brolin and actually looks looks pretty much like him. I'm going to tell you a little bit about who Dan White was before he was known as the first person to use the Twinkie defense. Dan White grew up in California, and uh, when he was a junior in high school, he was expelled for violent tendencies. So automatically, friends, we know this is not going to end well for Mr. White. Uh, Dan White, though, turned his life around. He went over, he served over in Vietnam, um, and then became a police officer in San Francisco. But something really interesting happens to Dan White, which is one day he sees a cop, a fellow police officer, beat a handcuffed suspect. And uh, while today that would be all over the news and probably most police officers supporting the police officer who beat the handcuffed suspect, uh, Dan White doesn't like that and actually ends up leaving the police force because he's so disgusted by the fact that fellow cops are allowed to beat handcuffed uh, suspects and get away with it. So he decides to become a fireman. So he's like, I still want to be involved in helping people. I'm just not going to be doing it with the police officers. I like a uniform. Like I just, The man likes a uniform. And honestly, he put down the deposit, and I totally understand. You know, once you pay that deposit for the uniform, you got to keep it somehow. He ends up becoming a fireman. And very early on in his career, 
um, he's known for being a hero because he saves uh, a woman and her baby from a blazing seventh floor apartment fire. Um, he literally risks his own life to save Jesus. this woman and to save her infant child. And he in San Francisco is on like every single newspaper. Everyone is calling him the all-American boy. And he's so popular that he feels and a group of supporters feel that he could be running for the city council in San Francisco, and he most likely would be able to win it. Now, the city council in San Francisco is going through a little bit of a change, um, and what they're going to be doing is, and we're going to get to this in a, in a hot second, how does a city council election normally work, my friends? Ba- ballot box? Yeah, I would I would assume it's like most elections. I'm sorry, let me rephrase the question. Who can run for city council? Uh, people who live in the district where the or live in the city, I guess. That would be my assumption. Ah, yes. Yeah. Oh, I'm so Daniel, you're absolutely right. Firemen. And no, Ray. <laughs> no. <laughs> only firemen. Um <laughs> you can only you can if you're living in the uh city itself, right? You can run for city council. You have to be a resident. Now, that's not changing, but something is changing in San Francisco in 1977. And that is San Francisco decides to change its election procedures. And instead of doing like citywide ballots, they're saying now there has to be a representative from every district in that particular city. So once again, it's not like, hey, you live in the city, it doesn't matter if, if all five members of our city council are from this neighborhood. We're not doing that anymore. Now every neighborhood in the city is going to get some sort of representation, which means if you know San Francisco, there are a lot of areas that are very different from other areas. And a lot of hills. A lot of hills. A lot of hills. A lot of hills. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about why that's going to be a problem in a second. Now, Dan White, he runs for um, in this new district election system in 1977. He runs for the city council um, or city supervisors, I should say. And he runs on an anti-crime platform, which was very big in San Francisco at this time, because at this time, San Francisco was being overrun by crime and people didn't like that. And people thought that San Francisco was becoming here comes the L word. What's the L word, folks? Too liberal lesbian liberal. San Francisco is becoming too liberal and too dangerous because we got pot and we got gays. So they look at Dan White as being somebody who, because he's had law enforcement experience, because he's been in the because he's still a member of the fire department, and he is this all-American hero, he's gonna come in and provide a more conservative, stable voice to the city council, which is now gonna have other people in it that are gonna represent the opposite side of what people are wanting. And a great individual like that would be somebody like Harvey Milk. Um, my friends, who is Harvey Milk? I, I am only familiar with him by reading, I've read Mayor of Castro Street, which was a great book. Highly, I highly recommend More it. More than me, that's great. And the movie with John Sean Penn. Penn that you mentioned. Um, so I know a little bit about him. Um, Rand, uh, well, I guess spoilers. So I don't, uh, this would be a spoiler. So I don't want to say something. I know that Diane um, Feinstein also has a connection to this oh, yeah, she does. whole saga. So I'm sure that'll come up as well. But I heard, I, I, from what I understand, Harvey Milk was a city council member of San Francisco, but also a an activist for the LGBT community and uh, really well known for his personality, but also his his activism and what he did for that community. From what I understand. You you are correct. And Daniel, thank you so much for being an ally for my community and knowing so much about him. Ray, is there anything you'd like to add on? Yeah, he uh, his family were dairy magnates. Thank you, Ray, for doing the research. I appreciate that. You're absolutely correct. 
Harvey Milk um, was much older than than Dan White. Dan White was 32 when he got to the city council. Harvey Milk was 48. Harvey Milk is known now for being the first openly gay politician um, in the state of California. Were there were there other nationally out politicians? Not at this level. Not at this level. So 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 he was technically like the first, not just California's first, but like the first nationally. There were openly gay politicians like in the city of New York. Um, uh, sorry, in sorry, in New York City, liberal cities. Yeah, yeah, and unfortunately, uh, and we'll see, we'll see why the Twinkie defense turn uh, sort of turns into what we're going to talk about today. But I don't know how much of uh, prominence Harvey Milk was on a national scene prior to. Um, what's going to happen to him in this particular story, which then sort of solidifies him as being an out candidate. Harvey Milk uh, grew up actually in New York City. He was uh, openly gay out there. He moves uh, to San Francisco and he becomes the de facto mayor of Castro Street. And that's not like an elected title. It's just he lived on Castro Street, was a very highly popular gay area. He knew everybody. He had a photography store and he was very involved in the community. And so sort of the same thing that was happening to Dan White, just on an opposite end, people said to Harvey Milk, you should also be running for city council um, and you also should be uh, getting yourself out there. And what he comes to prominence for is something called the Briggs Initiative. The Briggs Initiative in California was a, a politician by the name of Mr. Briggs who was trying to get it that if you were a, a gay teacher – in the state of California, you have to lose your job. You should not be around children. You should not be corrupting children at that point. Oh, boy. Isn't it nice to know that some things are just cyclical in life, that these same fucking discussions are still happening today? So Harvey Milk becomes the biggest proponent against the Briggs bill and is on like every television uh, show possible, giving every interview possible. I was born with heterosexual parents. I was taught by heterosexual teachers in a fiercely heterosexual society with television ads and newspaper ads, fiercely heterosexual, a society that puts down homosexuality. And why am I homosexual if I'm affected by role models? I should have been a heterosexual. And no offense meant, but if teachers are going to affect you as role models, there'd be a lot of nuns running around the streets today. Somebody asks him, aren't you worried, Mr. Milk, by being so vocally gay that you're putting your life in danger in some way. And this is a quote of his. He says, if a bullet should enter my brain, let that bullet destroy every closet door. Mr. Milk, I think, is assuming that if he is going to get killed, it's going to be by somebody who is incredibly homophobic. Um, we will circle back to this in a second. This is Harvey Milk. Guess who's a good friend of Harvey Milk's? Dan White. Even though Dan White is conservative, he's not homophobic. And in fact, he says that he respects the rights of all people, including gays. He voted to support a center for gay seniors and to honor um, gay pioneers in San Francisco. In fact, Harvey Milk was one of three people from City Hall that um, Dan White invited to the baptism of his new child. Oh, wow. Dan White was the one who persuaded Dianne Feinstein, who was the president of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, to appoint Harvey Milk as chairman of the Streets and Transportation Committee. He also opposed the Briggs Initiative. So, I mean, like, I think when you hear what's going to happen, th there's this idea that Dan White was homophobic and that Harvey Milk was killed because he was gay. That's not at all what happened. Um, Harvey Milk was was somebody who was killed who happened to be gay but was not killed because of his homosexuality. So these are two individuals who are actually working together and are quite friendly with one another. Now, 
we're going to meet our uh, third person in this little triumvirate today. And that's the mayor of San Francisco. And his name is George Masconi. He was 49 years old at the time of his death in 1978. He was a Democrat. He was known as being the people's mayor. Um, he believed in giving voice to those that were marginalized. He did school lunch programs. He legal. He was in favor of legalizing abortion and gay rights. He was the one who helped repeal the sodomy laws in San Francisco, saying that if you were engaged in gay sex, you'd have to go to jail. He runs for mayor in 1975 and he wins in 1977 they have the first district election city council that i was talking about right and so now sitting on the city council together will be uh harvey milk and dan white and now they're actually like working together as well as having george Moscone as the mayor running everything now this is where tensions start to come in. So the first thing that draws a little bit attention is that Moscone is appointing more diverse groups of individuals to um, lead certain organizations, which is making a lot of the white conservative people in the in this city feeling like their voices is not are not being heard because people whose voices have been silenced for so long are now getting a voice. Does this sound familiar, friends? Turn on the news. I was going to say, what year is this? Then. There's a group of lawsuits that come out against the San Francisco Police Department that are suing for discrimination. Basically, people are saying, I was gay, I applied, I got rejected. I was black, I applied, I got rejected. And so now these individuals are suing the San Francisco Police Department. Remember, um, Dan White worked for the San Francisco Police Department They're, uh, at one point in his life. They're now suing. San Francisco Police Department, they go on record and they say, no, 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 these people just aren't qualified. And and the police, uh, San Francisco Police Department chief, he says, yeah, gays are welcome. Bring them in. But behind pl- closed doors, these the, these police officers were Irish, Catholic, conservative officers, and they did not like where liberals were taking San Francisco. And they really didn't like the influx of gays coming into their city. So they thought if they could contain them and not have them as part of the law enforcement they would be uh they would all feel more protected and better off now here's where we get some real trouble originally harvey milk agreed with dan white that a mental health facility for troubled adolescents should not be placed in uh, a district that was very close to where white was representing but after harvey milk learned more about the facility he decided to switch his vote which really solidified Dan White's loss on the issue, which made Dan White look really weak in front of his constituents. Now, Dan White uh, is kind of pissed. And so he's like, you know, you made me look like a fucking fool, Harvey. Like you, you, I've helped you every step along the way. Like, why couldn't you do this for me? To get back at Harvey Milk, Dan White then decided he was going to oppose every initiative and issue that Harvey Milk supported. So now that Harvey Milk is persona non grata in Dan White's world, he sponsors a civil rights bill that is supposed to outlaw discrimination based on sexual orientation, and only one city council member votes against it. That's Dan White. And then something happened. Something like got triggered in Dan White, and I think it was the idea of looking like a failure in front of his constituents, like the one thing he was supposed to do for his district he couldn't do. And he stops talking to Harvey Milk. He stops talking to George Moscone. And um, an aide said later on, he goes, anytime I talk to Dan White about Harvey or George, it was so clear that Dan White's thought everything that was wrong in this world is represented by Harvey Milk and George Moscone. Yikes. So on November 10th, 1978, Dan White resigns. 
he resigns from the board of supervisors. And that means that George Moscone could choose the successor, getting then like George Moscone a liberal majority. So only 10 months after he's sworn in, Dan White's like, I'm fucking done. Why did he resign? He said that the annual salary of $9,600 wouldn't support his pregnant uh, fam- his, his wife who was pregnant at the time and his growing family. And because on city council, you can't take any other sort of city jobs, he wasn't allowed to be a policeman anymore or a fireman anymore. So there is no fucking income for this guy anymore. He's like, I can't, af- I can't afford to do this anymore at nine at $9,600 a year. So what does he do to make some extra money? Well, he opens up a potato stand. Needless to say, that did not go well. I'm surprised to know that a potato stand did not really go all that well. Were, were they baked potatoes? I don't know. They just said the man was opening potatoes. Because if he had fixins, I feel like that, I mean, he if he had the fixins, I that could have been popular back in San Francisco. Oh, with like, uh, ooh, like San, like, ooh, like with Ghirardelli chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So he leaves, but then the police and fire departments, like the heads of the police and fire departments, they literally go over to Dan White's house and they're like, what are you doing? They're like, if you're leaving, that means we don't have a voice on city council anymore. And Moscone can now put in a, somebody liberal in there. And then this whole city's going to go to shit. And so they're like, you ha- please, please, please change your mind. Please go back. On November 14th, Dan White says, okay, you're right. So he goes back and has a meeting with George Moscone and is like, hey, I kind of want my old job back. <laughs> and George Moscone says, you left. He's like, I can't, I can't put you back on. He's like, he's like, but let's talk about this tomorrow. And unfortunately, something happens that makes everybody sort of stop in their tracks. And what is that? Because the People's Temple is now out of San Francisco, and now they're down in Guyana, and they have the Jonestown Massacre. One, this is a national event in which all these people, what is it, like 900 or nine people or something that all kill themselves down on this island for this one guy, and they shoot a congressman. We'll talk about this on, a, on another broadcast. It is absolutely fucking intense, and this also gets Dan White's ire up because he says, quote, you see that? One day I'm on the front page and the next I'm swept right off. So here's a guy who's feeling diminished. He's quit his job. He might not get his job back. So on Sunday night, November 26th, he learns that it is official. George Moscone will not be reappointing Dan White supervisor. November 27th, 1978, it's a Monday. This is the day that George Moscone is going to announce who White's replacement is. There's going to be a press conference. Now, 30 minutes before the press conference, Dan White goes to City Hall to plead with George Moscone. Now, how would you normally get into someplace like City Hall? You would just walk through the front door, right? The problem is, in this situation, uh, is that the front doors at City Hall in San Francisco have metal detectors. So, Dan White, sneaks in through a basement window, avoiding the metal detector because on his person, he has his old police revolver and he goes into a private room with George Moscone. Remember, this is 30 minutes before the press conference. And he says, are you going to appoint me back to my position or no? And George Moscone says, Dan, you quit. And I don't think you're mentally stable enough to be doing this job anymore. To which Dan White responds by shooting George Moscone Twice, uh, sorry, uh, four times, I apologize. He shoots him once in the shoulder, once in the chest, then twice in the head. Then he goes back to his old office to reload with hollow point bullets. And as he's leaving his office, he runs right into Harvey Milk and he shoots him five times as well, twice in the head. 
He then calmly leaves the building. He goes to a diner, calls his wife, tells him what he did. And she's like, you have to turn yourself into the police station where he once worked. And when he goes to turn himself into the police station, they put him in a holding room. And what do the cops do with Dan White? They told jokes about Harvey Milk. They told jokes about George Moscone. They got him dinner. They got him cigars. And they treat him like he's a hero, not a man who's just killed two individuals. He was charged with two counts of murder and held without bail, uh, eligible for the death penalty, um, owing to, to the recent passage of a statewide proposition that allowed death or life in prison for the murder of a public official, um, which means he couldn't accept an award the following week uh, for rescuing that mom and child from, uh, oh, I'm sorry, it wasn't a seven-story building, it was a 17-story building. So he can't accept that award because he's, he's, he's sitting in prison. Now, while this is happening, there is um, a, a candlelight vigil that's happening outside of City Hall. I mean, uh, people love – you know, you can say what you want about the fact that he was very I mean, very corrupt, George Moscone. People loved him, uh, especially marginalized groups who felt they were finally having a voice. So there was a 40,000-person candlelight vigil that was outside of City Hall. Um, there were all these mourners that came. I mean, uh, Harvey Milk by this point, because he was the first openly gay elected individual, he was now getting national attention, and now the gay community was up in arms. But if there was a group that was more up in arms um, or, or more vocal than the gay community at this time, it was going to be the law enforcement all across the United States who consistently, and in San Francisco, police officers wore T-shirts that said, free Dan White. It's like the blue line back then. Uh-huh. And a sheriff in San Francisco at the time, when when interviewed by the, uh, the reporters going, you know, why are you supporting this man who just killed two people needlessly? And the guy said, quote, the more I observed what went on at the jail, the more I began to stop seeing what Dan White did as the act of an individual and began to see it as a political act in a political movement. That was one of his supporters? That was one of Dan White's supporters who said that? that? Yes, a police officer, a sheriff in San Francisco said, the more I observed what went on at that jail, the more I began to stop seeing what Dan White did as the act of an individual and began to see it as a political act in a political movement, which led to White never expressing remorse for his actions because now he was seen as someone who was justified. He's a martyr. He was a martyr for the cause. Ray, what are you thankful for this month? Well, Rob, I'm thankful that we have so many great This Was a Thing listeners and that so many of them financially support us so we can continue to dive as deep as we can into the cultural happenings of yesteryear. And support my Hummel habit. Want to help us be even more thankful? Head on over to Patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search for This Was a Thing and set a monthly donation. Even a dollar a month helps us. Your contributions help us continue doing what we are doing. And what are you doing this November, Rob? By being thankful that we can have as much diet canned cranberry sauce as we want. Gotta get my P90 Eximus body on. Ow. A hamstring. Go lay down, Rob. Mm. We are thankful for all of you and will be even more thankful if you can head on over to patreon.com. Dan White confesses to what he did, of course, and in the confession, um, which is recorded by the police station at the time, it is a very emotional confession. But basically what Dan White is saying in this very emotional confession is, is I had nowhere else to turn because People like George Moscone and Harvey Milk 
were making it impossible for me, a hero, a man who saved people's lives, a, a good man who walked away from a police department that I saw abusing uh, of victims. They're the ones who prevented me from saving my family. They're the ones who prevented me from putting a roof over my family's head. They're the ones who prevented me from uh, saving my neighbors and my constituents. And the police hearing this, he's expressing what they're all feeling, which is uh, that they are the silent majority, that they are not allowed um, to have a voice or representative anymore because we have to give it to people that are on the total opposite end of the spectrum as they are. So the police, the fire department, conservatives, they all take up the cause and go, we should have sympathy, kindness, and leniency for Dan White because he was pushed into a corner by Moscone and a guy like Harvey Milk. An idea then comes up in in uh, how the defense is going to work on this guy's trial. And they come up with this idea of diminished capacity. Do either of you know what diminished capacity is? And I know, Ray, when you tried to lock me away, you you used that phrase, so you should be very familiar with it. Well, it's when I when your capacity is, is uh, gets diminished. It just uh, dwindles down. Thank you, Ray. Mm. All right, you take it from here. That was good, Ray. I don't even know why I'm doing this episode. You know all this stuff. You liar. You said to me you didn't know nothing. Diminished capacity. This is what the, the defense said. Good people Fine people with fine backgrounds simply don't kill people in cold blood. It just doesn't happen. The part that perhaps went unrecognized and certainly went unrecognized until it was too late was the fact that Daniel White was suffering from a mental illness. He had been suffering from a mental illness since the time of early manhood, and it's a disease like any other disease, perhaps not easily diagnosable as a broken leg or arm, but far more devastating to the person. And the disease that Daniel White was suffering from is called depression, sometimes referred to as manic depression. And sometimes simply as depression. I love that they had to say it three times. It's not a feeling that perhaps you and I have experienced wherein, wherein one is depressed over certain turns of events or disheartened by something that has happened. No, we're tough Americans. But this is a chemical change that occurs within the man's body. And it's diagnosable and substantiated as a disease. So they get a jury for this trial. And uh, let me tell you who's on the jury. Okay. White middle-class San Franciscans who were mostly Catholic females with children. In 1978? Well, no, sorry, the trial's now 1979. Okay, well, that makes sense. Progress. And if you were gay or an ethnic minority, you were excused from the jury pool. Now, here's the thing. You're probably asking yourself, if you're the defense, it makes total sense to be like, I don't want any gays on the jury, I don't want ethnic minorities on the jury, and I only want people that look like Dan White. If you were the district attorney or the prosecutor, wouldn't you be fighting for being like, wait a minute, wait a minute. They need to be included on the jury, too. Right. You're going to find out why the district attorney was not fighting so hard for this. Yeah. Okay. So they had to figure out a way of explaining, because remember, folks, this is 1978. This is 1979. Yes, there is a thing as known as depression, but people, they think it's, like, you, you've heard this. You've heard this. and I'm not diminishing it. I'm just telling you how it was back then. You know, if you were depressed, you would be like, ah, snap out of it. Or like, go take a walk. You know what I yep. mean? It was not necessarily looked at on a grand scheme as something as being something that everybody was familiar with and, and that everybody was knowledgeable with or that everybody actually even thought was a legitimate thing. So they had to be able to somehow be able to articulate um, like a physical – like can I, can I show you in some way how the depression gets triggered? So his lawyer said uh, that his uh, mental deterioration was demonstrated – and exacerbated by his junk food binge the night before the murders. And they said, don't forget, folks, Dan White 
was very health conscious. Uh, and if, like I said, if you ever look at a photo of Dan White, he looks like a football player. I mean, Dude he is, is blonde, blue eye. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's in really fucking good physical condition. And they said that the Twinkies, their consumption was symptomatic of his underlying depression in his day-long accounting, this is a doctor, in his day-long accounting of how White's life unraveled, one small aspect of something that this doctor said, which was two minutes of a greater part of the day on the stand, was literally what the reporters took away from this. And the guy said, the doctor said, quote, studies show that if you have a general predisposition, predisposition to bipolar mood swings, things you ingest can play a part. And leading up to the days before the assassination, Dan White cast aside his normal habits. He put on a bunch of weight. He stopped working. He shunned his wife. He stopped shaving. And rather than eat his healthful diet, all he did was eat Twinkies and Coke. And all of these were symptoms of the depression. And he said, the doctor said the junk food only made Dan White more depressed, which caused him to binge even more. A newspaper reporter, um, a guy named Paul Krasner, who was a satirist, he was covering the trial, and he latched on to that. And what's so interesting is that when the doctor is giving out examples of, like, the junk food, he mentioned ho-hos, he mentioned ding-dongs, um, and he mentioned Coca-Cola. He never once mentioned the word Twinkie. But this guy who was covering the trial thought the Twinkie was going to be a much better title. And so he said, oh, yeah, they're going on with the Twinkie defense. Oh, my God. Does that all make sense? Yeah. Well, yeah, especially because ding dongs are way better than Twinkies. Oh, absolutely. So from a national level, all people are hearing is this guy killed two individuals because he had too many Twinkies. This satirist, Paul Krasner, he was in every fucking newspaper at the time, and he was somebody that everybody loved to read. So once again, he's sitting in this, he's sitting in the trial, and he takes this one little moment, this one thing that was not even supposed to be a huge part of the trial. All they were trying to do was explain how this guy had mental health issues, and these were all the signs of things that were leading up to like uh, proving that he had mental health issues. They took that and they said, this is now the Twinkie defense. There were other things that did get talked about, but nobody listened to them. For example, like why was he carrying a gun into, into, the, into the city council that day? The defense said, well, you know, a lot of former police officers always carry guns, on, carry their ammunition and guns on them. It's just force of habit. Why the fuck did the guy enter through a window as opposed to going through the door? And they said, well, a lot of people used to enter through that broken window. Like all of this stuff, which actually is kind of important, nobody is remembering because this one newspaper columnist was like, oh, yeah, he ate a lot of Twinkies and he killed people. Isn't that funny? But I mean, isn't this absolutely like fascinating? No, that's bonkers. This is nuts. So. For days, jurors examined the evidence, and the defense's contention was that White suffered from diminished capacity and depression. So the jurors go back to deliberate. They do. A, they go on a blackboard, and they discuss the pros and cons of premeditation. That's really what's what we're looking at here. Was did this guy go into city council knowing that he that he was he wanted to kill these two individuals? I mean, the fact that the man went through a fucking window with a gun to me. <laughs> to me, makes it feel like he kind of had an idea of what he was going to do. But a lot of people went through that window back then. You have to realize a lot of people went in through the window. The discussion amongst the jurors grew so heated um, that at one point they were escorted to the roof of the Hall of Justice to cool off because they were just yelling at each other so much they had to they had to take them to the fucking roof. I'm like, that's great. The thing that they were hung up over the most 
was the killing of Harvey Milk. Because in order to kill Harvey Milk, you remember Dan White had to reload his gun just before he killed him. And it was not until the final day of deliberation that jurors, mindful that they had to take into account, quote, reasonable doubt, agreed to the charge that they finally came up with. 36 hours after they were excused to deliberate, they came back with their verdict for Dan White. The Twinkie defense worked because Dan White was acquitted of the first degree murder charge, but he was found guilty of voluntary manslaughter of both victims. And he was sentenced to serve seven and two-thirds years with um, the sentence reduced for time served and good behavior. Um, He could be released in five and be released by 1984. When the result was when the jury's verdict was read to everybody in San Francisco, because obviously they broke into all the news coverage and stuff, um, just about every single police officer threw open their police officer cop doors and they all played Danny Boy which was being broadcast from the police radios. It's like them trying to do a network moment. Yeah. And some gay individuals, gay allies and and gay politicians, not politicians at the time, but, but people that were working for the gay and lesbian cause said that if he had just killed the mayor, that this would be a much different story. That night, the gay community in San Francisco does what's known as the White Knight Riots. This is uh, 3,000 people rioting. They set, they set police cars on fire. They threw a burning newspaper dispenser through the doors of City Hall. They pelted it with ro- um, rocks. And when people were asked why they were rioting, they all said, quote, we just ate too many Twinkies. Well, I will say the, the rioting was all fully choreographed, though. Which is great. I will say one thing for my people. We know how to have a fucking party. I want to talk a little bit about this district attorney. Remember him? The D. The gentleman who was supposed to say, what the fuck are you talking about? Eating too many Twinkies doesn't kill somebody. Or, hey, he brought a fucking loaded gun in. Hey, he reloaded the gun. Hey, he went in through a fucking window. Um, This guy was named Joseph Friatas, District Attorney Joseph Friatas. And um, at the end of the trial, he had a bunch of angry gay constituents who were like, can you tell us what the fuck went wrong? And he admitted, he, here, you ready for this? He admitted to feeling sorry for Dan White. And when they asked why didn't he bring um, White's interrogator from the night of the confession up to the stand, and by the way, White's um, interrogator was not only a childhood friend of Dan White, he was also the coach of his softball team, the district attorney said, well, I didn't want to embarrass the detective in front of his family in court. He also didn't question White's frame of mind or lack of history of mental illness or bring into evidence city politics, uh, suggesting that uh, revenge might have been a motive. He didn't mention anything like that. He didn't do his job, this guy. Uh, There was a supervisor who was also on the city council with them named Carol Ruth Silver, and she testified on the last day of the trial that White and Milk were not friendly, yet she had contacted the prosecutor and insisted on testifying. And it was only the only testimony that the jury heard about their strained relationship. He brought no fucking witnesses up to talk about the fact that Dan White had a fucking grudge against people. The last thing really quickly is the attorney general said, well, uh, I'm blaming the jury because uh, they had taken they had been taken in by the whole emotional aspect of the trial, which is bullshit. The guy just didn't do his job. You may not know the answer to this, but like back then, did they use like mental illness in court? Like how it wasn't talked about in general population, but like would they would they have brought that up in another case in court? Rarely, because the idea of diminished capacity 
the first state to ever use this idea of diminished or impaired capacity was in was in the state of California in 1949 oh, wow. uh, with a case called People v. Wells. So this was relatively new because you have to remember, unlike today, we now know that psychiatry analysis, this is just like the beginnings of this being in the popular discourse in the late 60s, early 70s. So this was not really used. Um, if anything, people would go, he's crazy and put him away. But they would want they would want somebody like fucking drooling at the table talking to themselves. Do you know what I mean? To them, that's what depression was. So to look at somebody like Dan White, to look at somebody who was a hero, he was a city councilman, he was a police officer, a fireman, he saved people's lives, he had a wife, he had a family, he looked respectable. It, it didn't jive. It, it, did, it didn't make sense. Something had to have, how could somebody so normal be uh, brought to this? Well, he had to have been pushed into it by two assholes. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And we have to punish him in some way for what he did, but we really shouldn't punish him because this really isn't his fault. This is the victim's fault. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Sadly. So in 1980, San Francisco decided they were going to end their district supervisor elections because I think just by putting all these different people on, just didn't seem to work. We have two people dead now because of it. Um, they did come back in 19, uh, sorry, in 2000. California then voters then changed the law to reduce the likelihood of acquittals of accused who knew what they were doing but claimed their capacity was impaired. Diminished capacity was abolished as a defense to a charge, but courts did allow evidence of it when deciding whether to incarcerate, commit, or otherwise punish a criminal defendant. And as a result of all the negative publicity from the White case and others, the term diminished capacity was abolished in 1982 by Proposition 8 and the California legislature and was replaced by the term diminished actuality, referring not to the capacity to have a specific intent, but to whether the defendant actually had the required intent to commit the crime. And additionally, California's statutory definitions of premeditation and malice required for murder were eliminated by the state's legislature with the return to common law definitions. By this time, the, quote, Twinkie defense had become such a common term that one lawmaker had waved a Twinkie in the air while making his point during a debate. Oh, my God. So guess what, friends? In 1984, January 7th, 1984, Guess who gets released from prison even earlier, even earlier than he was supposed to? That's Dan White. And the police were so scared for Dan White, they uh, transferred him to Los Angeles to release him in the middle of the night because they didn't want him to be released in San Francisco. So that's good. Let's protect him. And at that time, Diane Feinstein was now the mayor of San Francisco, and she said, please don't come back here. He uh, didn't live much longer because on October 21st, 1985, Dan White killed himself. And what's interesting is it's in 1998, Frank Faison, who was the homicide inspector on the case, who didn't say this at the trial and didn't say it after Dan White was arrested, he admitted. Dan White had said to him that George Moscone and Harvey Milk were not the only ones he wanted that day. He also wanted to kill the speaker, Willie Brown, and he wanted to kill fellow uh, council member, Carol Ruth Silver, which means all of this was premeditated. He went in with a loaded gun to kill four individuals and only killed two. So this man who killed two people needlessly ended up getting only a few years in prison. And had he chosen not to take his own life, could still be living today. It's interesting to note that, like, since then, since then, we've had other cases that have looked at the Twinkie defense and said, oh, yeah, that's a way in for my client to be acquitted. 
And we'll talk more about those when we get back from the break. This was a thing, this was a thing. And now, this is a sketch. Are you a cold-blooded murderer who is looking for an acquittal, but you feel that a standard defense is too unpredictable? Well, at Rosen, Rosen, and since the passing of affirmative action, Chang, we specialize in coming up with unique defenses that are sure to get you back into society again. Did you kill while eating at Wendy's? Try our square patty defense. You were so disturbed by the burger's right angles, you didn't know it was wrong when you shot your cheating wife. Don't worry, the square patty defense will get you back on the streets ready to start a new relationship with a woman who loves you. Maybe you can even treat it to McDonald's this time. Did you slaughter your entire family because they keep changing the time of MASH on CBS? Then you need the Loretta Swit defense. How could you even look at your family when you couldn't even consistently look at the hot lips of Major Houlihan? MASH's Loretta Swit. No jury would acquit you for pleading self-defense when you blew up that bridge, but they just might when we drop our why-do-your-feet-smell-but-your-nose-runs defense. The jury will be so angry on your behalf they'll be lining every bridge in America with TNT. And at Rosen, Rosen, and Chang, that stands for Trial and Treasure. TNT. Yes, treasure. The jury will pay you restitution as they cry over this conundrum. But... You don't have to believe me. Here are some of our acquitted clients. I stole, crashed, and defecated on my boss's car, and I got acquitted because of the how the fuck does an abacus work defense. Thanks, Rosen, Rosen, and Chang. My 30th anniversary. I decided I had enough of my husband, and instead of getting a divorce, I decapitated him in his sleep. I wasn't in the right headspace, and after I was done... Well, neither was he. I got acquitted because Rosen, Rosen, and Chang used the Why Does Diane Keaton Work So Much defense. You know, she sort of just plays the, the same character in every movie. It's irritating. It, it just gets under my skin, just giggling and looking down and mumbling. And, and, and she wins an Oscar? Are no other actresses working? I mean, she even turns down work. How? Did you see Annie Hall? Ah, woof! And I bet she's a lesbian. I, I, I just know these things. I set fire to an orphanage because I didn't like how my neighbor parked his car. I was a dead duck until these guys were able to get me acquitted on the, let's be honest, the only funny sketch on the brunette show was where she wore the curtain rod defense. I mean, think about it. How many years we wasted, wasted, thinking it was funny because we were told she was funny? What's funny? Nothing. Nothing is funny. And for those that are trying to watch their weight, we also offer alternatives to the Twinkie defense, including the Sanka defense, the Tofu defense, and the Diabetic Whitman Samplers defense. Don't let logic and justice upend your plans to stay at home and plot the demise of those who are different than you. Simply pick up the phone and call Rosen, Rosen, and Chang at Murray Hill 75757. Remember, the best defense is a delicious offense. Thank you. This was a sketch. All right, friends. So that is 
the story of how the Twinkie defense came to be uh, and the origins of it. Uh, so uh, I'm going to give you a little update on how the Twinkie defense has been used today uh, since the assassinations of Harvey Milk. And I don't even want to say assassinations. I just want to say murders, the murders of, of George Moscone and Harvey Milk. It was referenced very, somewhat recently in the grand history of things during Supreme Court arguments in the United States versus Gonzalez Lopez, Justice Antonin Scalia referred to the Twinkie defense with regard to the right to counsel of choice as perhaps more important than the right to effective assistance of counsel. This is Scalia, quote, I don't want a competent lawyer. I want a lawyer who's going to get me off. I want a lawyer who will invent the Twinkie defense. I would not consider the Twinkie defense an invention of a competent lawyer, but I want a lawyer who's going to win for me. I think he then is pretty much summarizing what lawyers' jobs were post this 1979 trial, which is get your client off. It doesn't matter if it's true. It doesn't matter if it's accurate. It doesn't matter if there's any scientific validity to it. This guy said, this guy is a wonderful human being. He ate a lot of junk food, and this is what happened. And 12 individuals were like, yep, that's it. And he got off. This man easily could have been sentenced to death. And because his lawyers were smart enough, he ended up getting out of prison and living a life for himself. Other examples of this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to name these uh, uh, things. And let me know if you know what these trials are, or what the excuse was. Do you remember uh, Ethan Couch, who killed four individuals while driving under the influence? The affluenza defense? No. No. Yeah. So Ethan Couch was this kid who was underage, uh, pissed drunk, uh, f- comes from a filthy fucking rich family, and he got in the car and killed four people, and he got off. His lawyer said, well, he suffers from affluenza, which means because his family is so rich and he's gotten everything he ever wanted, he can't really tell right from wrong. And doesn't understand that there are repercussions because he's never had a repercussion in his life. So because he is privileged, he doesn't understand consequences and therefore... Yes. Oh my, okay. Wow. Ethan Couch. Got off, by the way. Um, Then there's the cough syrup defense. This was used by four different individuals, the Reverend Matthew Phelps, the Dr. Louis Chen, James McAvee, and Shane Tilly, who all uh, committed various different crimes and all said that it's because they had too much cough syrup. Kenneth Sands, who molested five women, he got off with the caffeine defense. He had too much caffeine. The most famous one, which actually now is uh, sort of has replaced the Twinkie defense, is what's known as the Chewbacca defense. (laughs) Any fans of South Park there? I watched a lot of early South Park. I haven't watched it in a while, though. They used something called the Chewbacca defense, which is it's things that are used to confuse the jury as opposed to rebutting the main district attorney point. And it's based on Johnny Cochran. And Johnny Cochran's um, idea of, um, you know, when O.J. Simpson was accused of murdering his wife and, and Ron Goldman, that um, instead of refuting the evidence, the district, att- the, the defense attorney was like, look at this and look at that and look at this and look at that. So in South Park, Johnny Cochran gets up there and starts talking about Chewbacca <laughs> and like, why is Chewbacca this and why is Chewbacca? Th-? It has nothing at all to do with the trial. So the Twinkie defense has sort of been replaced now in pop culture with the term Chewbacca defense. But at the end of the day, they're both the same thing. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Chewbacca. Chewbacca is a Wookiee from the planet Kishik. But Chewbacca lives on the planet Endor. 
Now think about that. That does not make sense. Damn it. What? He's using the Chewbacca defense. Why would a Wookiee, an eight-foot-tall Wookiee, want to live on Endor with a bunch of two-foot-tall Ewoks? That does not make sense. But more importantly, you have to ask yourself, what does this have to do with this case? Nothing. Ladies and gentlemen, it has nothing to do with this case. It does not make sense. If Chewbacca lives on Endor, you must acquit. The defense rests. Okay, then. Wow, he's good. So, we've heard this term before. Where did it come from? Where are its origins? Its origins are in Dan White's defense of why he broke into a fucking building with a loaded gun, shot the mayor of San Francisco, reloaded the gun, shot a fellow city supervisor, and then was going to shoot two more people. But simply, he just had too many Twinkies. So, folks, that's the Twinkie defense. Any questions? Several. I'm here to answer them all. I'm a lawyer. That's great, because many of them are legally um, relevant. No, actually, it kind of relates to the Chewbacca defense thing you were talking about, too. But did Hostess, and this might sound silly, but did Hostess have any comment or any sort of response to one of its products being associated with Interesting, yeah. what oh, oh, I think over time has obviously been seen in less and less of a positive light. Did the hostess have any sort of response? Because I imagine that like, nowadays, I mean, we see companies so quickly, like corporate entities get out in front of these things so quickly where it's like, we don't want our brand at all, like touching things that are kind of on the third rail of any sort of cultural topic. So did hostess do anything? Did they respond in any way to it? to its being associated with the case. You know, it's so interesting that you say that because as I was looking, because that was one of my first questions was, um, did they have anything to say on it? Right. And I literally, in all the research that I did, and if somebody out there knows something that I don't, please let me know. I could not find in any newspaper, in any sort of legal journal, them turning around going, this, this is not accurate. And I think, honestly, that's, because I think everyone sort of realized what a ridiculous claim it was, so there was no point to even acknowledge it. And I don't think anybody took it seriously. It's so crazy. I think most people just laughed, laughed this off because they knew it was so fucking ridiculous. So I don't think Hostess ever felt like we're being threatened. Yeah. I don't know, and maybe this is mi mischaracterizing what you said earlier, but when you were talking about the kind of the effective counsel thing, the comment that Antonin Scalia made, I don't know, the ba in the back of my head, I was thinking, based on the way you built the narrative and the sort of the, the way they talked about Dan White and described in detail the, the mental illness element of it, which I do want to say, and like, I, I know this is obviously an awful case and what happened, what he did is inexcusable. And yet at the same time, I do think that mental illness is a really obviously a serious topic. And so there's, there's a lot, there's so much importance in that, but what it almost sounded like to me is that the lawyers were trying to, especially given, like you said, the novelty of that argument in some ways, they were trying to like grasp at straws and they almost, they, it almost didn't sound like they were effective counsel. It almost just sounded like they were lucky that this cartoonist snatched on this one detail and it became such a meme. What, I don't know. Like that's the perception I got, but was that more of a post-fact thing where it became so popular? Yeah. I mean, I don't, uh, based on everything that I've read in terms of what the jury deliberated, they didn't really give much thought to this. Oh, okay. Okay. Got it. I mean, I, I, what they were giving thought to was basically 
regardless of whether or not he had Twinkies or he didn't have Twinkies or he had this, he had that, they were really looking at the idea was, was this a, were these two premeditated murders? Okay. That's what they were looking at. And I think what triggered premeditation or spur of the moment really wasn't taken too much into account. And that it's us as a culture that sort of made this around i think i think they got very lucky for a number of reasons i think the the or his counsel got lucky for a number of reasons one they had a very weak district attorney and you have to remember a district attorney works hand in hand with law enforcement so they don't want to fuck over law enforcement i think if they i think if the district attorney had done their job they probably would have lost a lot of really good connections for themselves with the police department at the time so i think they got very lucky in that regard they got very lucky in regard to the fact that dan white was a hero you know, this was a guy who, like I said, he saved a, a woman, a baby, 17-story building that's on fire. He was a police officer. He was a soldier. I mean, he's literally the poster boy of, like, what every parent wanted their kid to be, except for this one particular horrific moment, which is being blamed on. It also, I'm assuming, and I, I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, I'm assuming that this jury, when they heard that another gay person died, was like, oh, good. You know what I mean? Uh, at, at this particular time, I don't think people lost. I don't think anyone on this jury lost a lot of sleep over this. And I think I don't think they lost a lot of sleep over the fact that somebody like George Moscone, who is giving voice and help to a lot of people they consider to be other. I don't think they lost sleep over this. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Sadly, yes. I, I understand what you mean, even though I agree that it's an awful thing to imagine. But that is also also a product of the times, which is what is less than, you know, since 1979 we have made as a country so many strides in understanding mental health so many strides in understanding a queer identity you know what i mean it's it's so uh, fascinating and multifaceted but i think what most people remember it from now is it's the twinkie defense mm -hmm. this is the first thing that allowed things like Af ethan couch is now living a great life why because of the twinkie defense you know what i mean so i th i think this is the beginnings of what we're seeing today or, or what, we, what we're sort of used to at this point. Because I can't really think of anything before the Twinkie defense that allowed such illogical idea to come in and take precedent. And like you're saying, there's a difference between them saying, well, listen, you know, he was suffering de from depression, and here are some examples of how he was suffering from it. And them, then lawyers then taking that kernel of an idea and then making it their entire defense. His whole defense was not about eating junk food right right now it is now it is with like affluenza and cough syrup and msg now it is today's lawyers take it one step further man twinkies what what you gonna do about them so i do i still have to try one of these things it feels like there's a lot of baggage tied up with twinkies now i don't know if i i don't know if trying one is really uh... eat it man Eat it. It's going to be for Patreon. That's going to be a Patreon exclusive? Okay. Yeah, Daniel eating, Daniel trying Twinkies. Old Lucy level or higher. Daniel's going to try a whole hostess of snacks. What if we put a Twinkie in ice cream? That might be fascinating. You know, there actually is. Wait a second. Yeah, there actually is a Twinkie ice cream. What? All right. Yeah. Uh, this is a research project. No, it, there, no, there really is one. And there's also a Twinkie you. cereal. But that makes sense, of course, because they, they make a cereal version of everything. Right? I've never had it, but I'm very curious. So, friends, that was uh, the story of the Twinkie defense. Once again, uh, Twinkies do not cause you to kill anybody, um, but uh, homophobia and racism does. So, on that happy note, who wants to play a game? Let's do it. This was a thing and now it's a quiz. 
All right, friends, I'm filling in for Mark Schroeder today, and we're going to play a game. Today we're talking a lot about the great Harvey Milk, once again, a pioneer. There's so many great movies about him, Milk, starring Sean Penn, as well as a great documentary called The Life and Times of Harvey Milk from 1984. So, Daniel and Ray, though, I'm going to test your Harvey knowledge. I'm going to describe someone, and the name Harvey is somehow associated with them in some way, shape, or form. Could be a first name. Could be a last name. Okay, Daniel, you're up first. Ready? All right. Once again, the name Harvey is somewhere in this person's name. All right, here we go. They host TMZ. Is that Steve Harvey? Is that right? I don't know. I know. Is he a person? I'm sorry. I don't know. Moving on. Uh, Raspy-voiced playwright. Oh, Harvey Firestein. An actor in the movie Mean Streets. Mm, next. A famous Broadway producer and film producer. What? Uh... Oh, oh, um, canceled person, awful person, awful person. Um, yes, Harvey yes. Uh, Weinstein, Weinstein. Yes, nicely done. And sidekick to Carol Burnett. Uh, Harvey Harvey. No, I'm so sorry. Okay, the ones that you missed, Daniel, no worries. You missed Harvey Levin, who hosts TMZ. Okay. Uh, you got Harvey Firestein, our raspy voice playwright. The actor from Mean Streets is Harvey Keitel. Harvey Weinstein oh. is our producer. And, of course, Carol Burnett's sidekick is the great Harvey Corman. Okay. Let me clear this up. Rob just said Harvey Weinstein is our producer, and he no, just meant in no, the game sense. Yes. Harvey Weinstein is not our producer for the show. I just want to clear that up. If we had said Reservoir Dogs, I would have gotten Harvey Keitel. I, I've never seen Mean Streets. Love Harvey Keitel. He's very, very good. Reservoir Dogs is my favorite movie. It's phenomenal. Ray, it's your turn. You you have a, a low bar to pass. All right, Ray. Here you go. You have to get more than two. Okay, Ray? Real name of Two-Face. Harvey Dent. Very good. Uh, best known as the Lonely Hearts Killer. Oh, jeez. Uh, next. Uh, composer of the Fantastics. Oh, my God. Fuck. You can do it. You can do this. Uh, Harvey Plum. Comic book author. Best known for American Splendor. Oh, fuck. Harvey. Um, why did I get all these ones? I should have gone first. Uh, 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 I, fuck. I can't think of his name. Okay, go ahead. Next. Cartoon attorney at law. Harvey Birdman. Oh, boy, guys, we're tied. Oh, no. Two for two. Do you want to tell Ray which ones he missed? Sorry, I, I don't want to interrupt there. You yes, can... I'm sorry. You got Harvey Dent. That's right. Harvey Glatzman was the Lonely Hearts killer. Harvey Schmidt is the composer of The Fantastics. Harvey Pecker is the comic book Pecker. author who wrote American Splendor. And yes, Harvey Birdman, attorney at law. Okay, friends, Pecker. here we go. This is a tiebreaker. Oh, no. Whoever can buzz in first. Harvey Specter. That's the person's name. Harvey Specter is the main character on this television show. Bonanza. Right? Quantum Leap. Suits. Suits. Well, now we know that Rob watches Suits. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you another one. Ready? The Harvey Award is the award given for achievement in this. Foley work. Um, for wig making. Comic books. Oh, okay. Comic books. That actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, Hurricane Harvey. Oh. Struck which state in 2017? Texas. Daniel Schwartzberg, congratulations. You are the winner uh, of today's game. And Hurricane Louisiana. Harvey. And Louisiana. Okay, okay, okay. Are we back to it? No, you, he can have it. He can have wow. it. Wow. Are you sure, Ray? Yes, I want you to have your first. I want you to win the fir your first show. I want you to feel right at home. That's very kind of you. I feel like this is a pity win, but I'll take it. Uh, and I want you to know that if I went first, I would have sweeped. I would have just cleaned the rug with you. I believe it, man. Yeah, I I bow down to your level of Harvey knowledge, much greater than mine. 
And, well, I defer to your knowledge when it comes to all hostess snacks as well. So you both have taught me a lot, not only about the Twinkie Defense, but about the snack foods that I have yet to encounter and must uh, m- I must enjoy at po- some point in my life. I just want to say this before we sign off. Um, Little Debbie is better than Hostess altogether. I'll be honest. I thought that Little Debbie was a sub-brand of Hostess, so now I'm learning even more things. You no, know, Little Debbie is a child who happened to capitalize on being great baker. Well done, Debbie. Well done, Debbie, and well done, the two of you today. Great job. Thanks for listening to This Was a Thing, the retro podcast. We're so happy that Daniel Schwartzberg joined us today for oh, this geez. particular episode. Uh, friends, uh, if you want to find us, Ray, where can they find us? Thiswasathing.com, starting with www.thiswasathing.com. Instagram, This Was a Thing Pod. We got Patreon. You can uh, search This Was a Thing, or even, Daniel, why don't you tell them about uh, becoming an Apple Podcast member? Sure, Ray. So, if you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, which we believe a lot of you do based on what we can see on our downloads. So you can also go into Apple Podcasts, and if you're on the show page, there is an option to subscribe to our membership through Apple Podcasts, which is called And Another Thing. And if you are a member of that or any of the Patreon tiers from the old Lucy level or higher, as Ray was just mentioning, you will get ad-free episodes. You will get some bonus extra content every so often, in addition to supporting the show, which already just listening does, but we really appreciate any support you guys give. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you. Thank you all so much, and we'll see you all in a couple of weeks with a new episode of This Was a Thing. Eat some Twinkies, or don't, I guess. Maybe don't. Don't do that. Or do. You can't eat them. They don't do anything. Good po- Right? I missed the moral of the story. Eat the Twinkies. Enjoy. Yes. Thanks for listening to This Was a Thing, and a big thanks to the folks that keep this show running. Our editor, Daniel Cut Cut Schwartzberg, our composer, Billy Better Than DC Reese, our social media director, Gabe Hashtag Crawford, our graphic designer, Natalie's Nothing Too Graphic DeSavia, and finally, our games coordinator, Mark the Shark Schroeder. If you liked what we did today, make sure to head on over to iTunes to rate and review us. The more stars you leave us, the more love we feel. Hey, speaking of love, show us some social media love. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at This Was a Thing Pod and Facebook we are This Was a Thing Podcast. Reach out, we'd love to hear from you. And if you really like what we did today, head on over to Patreon.com and become one of our sponsors, and you'll get access to special episodes, interviews, and merch. That's Patreon. Search This Was a Thing and support us so we can keep doing this show. 